Father in heaven, we thank you that we can approach you. And that that actually has meaning through all eternity, that you created us to be able to approach you. And that all of redemptive history is, is driving us to that glorious day when we can dwell with you in perfection. And we long for it. We ask that this Sunday be a a time of refreshment, reflection, and and fortitude for us for the week ahead, and that as we look at these conflicting and troubled saints of the past, that we may find some comfort in our own struggles as we move to the future in our own communion. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So, okay, well, this series is Luther, Calvin, and Cramner which obviously are topics that <laughs> demand a lot more than 40 minutes of, of, of Sunday school. They can require a lifetime of study, uh, at least a semester, I guess, in my world. But uh, nevertheless, there's enough, there's enough there, and there is enough theological meat there that we can do, uh, I, I think, this sort of uh, introduction to them to see, at least in my argument, how these, these three men are the, the theological godfathers, for lack of a better word, of the Anglican Communion. And yes, there are others, uh, no doubt. Um, there is a, another generation I, specifically what this is designed to do is look at the Reformation generation, the Reformers, the theological um, insight that that first generation brings that uh, is really quite remarkable given both the environment that they were coming out of and the legacy that they left. So there are plenty of other people we could be exploring. The rationale for this is that these are these are big ones. These are important ones. And indeed, just to to arrange the furniture a bit more, I would suggest that Luther and Calvin, more than any other theologians of the early Reformation, uh, influenced the way our Anglican ancestors put together the Book of Common Prayer and the Thirty Nine Articles. Often they're they're not necessarily dismissed, but they're not necessarily held together either as forefathers or godfathers of Anglicanism or, or theological fathers of Anglicanism. But I think they are. And I think also, given the climate of the contemporary church, it's worth a revisit. It's worth taking time and sitting down with people who we're in the heat of a, of, of a struggle on the meaning of salvation itself and the purposes of salvation. Um, so that, that's a little, again, furniture arranging to, to get us uh, to the subject itself. Last week we began with Martin Luther. And in, in brief, what we established is Luther gives us a theology of how we get right with God, the language I used, colloquial, 
How do we get right with God? Luther gives us a theology of imputation and our relationship to Christ and Christ's merits as not being bound to the sacramental theology of the Roman church. Uh, Arguably, uh, if we're looking again at Anglican identity and Anglican theology, uh, this is one of the most important legs on the stool. It's one of the most important pillars or, um, or undergirdings that we have, justification by faith. But again, you can say it so much and hear it so much that it becomes kind of casual, justification by faith, right? I believe, okay. But, but to really step back and understand that what Luther's proposing is, is not, it, it's a New Testament radicalness in terms of how we understand Paul and what Paul is saying in relationship to the Gospels as an apostle, as a witness to Christ, that we are not saved. The merits of Christ are not infused in us, distributed to us through participation in certain activities, including penance. But the merits of Christ are given to believers by God as a gift of God to bring them into communion with him. The merits of Christ, therefore, are God's to give. And that is the great blessing and the overwhelming mercy of it all that Luther saw. Because Luther had the keen eye to see that the God of the Old Testament, especially, can be quite frightening at times, especially when your conscience is troubled. Where is mercy found? Mercy is not found in the sacramental order of the church, although that has its place, as we'll see today, an important place. It is found in the actual act of God in Christ. That's Luther's enormous insight. That's Luther's great thunderbolt. Okay. Having said that, the, the professorial spasm in me and say, oh, and there's a lot more, and there's this footnote and this footnote. I don't want to do that, though, for the sake of time. Let's just hold that for its influence in our own communion, a solidly Protestant communion. And if you remember, last week I asked you, why are you Protestant? Why are you Protestant? I don't expect everybody to wake up on Tuesday morning and to jump up and ask that question. It would be kind of interesting if you did. But uh, it is a question, I think, worth reflection, and it's worth consideration. And I think Luther helps us answer that. I think Calvin does as well. And I, again, repeat, I think both streams feed into Cramner's project that we today hold in our Book of Common Prayer and specifically our 39 articles, a blueprint for what Anglicans hold the scriptures teach. Calvin is a a much more enigmatic figure in some ways than Luther. Um, There's all kinds of baggage that goes with saying the name. There's certain people in history that's just the case. You say their name and Julius Caesar, you know. Uh, I guess Martin Luther would be one too, right? Um, uh, There's certain people, if you, when you say their name, all types of images, stereotypes, perhaps even uh, misconceptions are pulled up. Calvin, I think, is one of those 
And there are several reasons for that. One, he was just a hard nut to crack. He just wasn't, he wasn't an open book. Um, we don't know a lot about him. And what we know of him, we generally read in a generic history book that says, oh yeah, he created a totalitarian state in Geneva and killed Severus, uh, who was condemned all over Europe at the time. Um, not a lot of responses to that on my part, except to say that uh, Calvin and Luther both were medieval men. And medieval men had a different understanding of human rights and the relationship between church and state than we do after the Enlightenment. I don't think in that regard Calvin's that weird. Uh, but that's for another subject because I don't want to spend too much time on that. I want to get to the bio a quick biography uh, and then focus on the theological implications of Calvinism for Anglicanism. He was a Frenchman, Nouillon, France, 1509. He was born, Luther was finishing his doctorate and, and about to enter into teaching in Wittenberg. So Luther is an older man. Um, Calvin's <coughs> thought, and, and it also, it demarks Calvin solidly as a second generation guy. He's not a first generation reformer. His real influence comes 20 years in to this movement. Um, his father was a, he started out as a cathedral administrator is about the best word for it. It would have been an upper middle class position. Uh, well, well, a respectable position. He got out of that and ended up becoming a lawyer. Calvin himself entered the University of Paris at the age of 14. Um, there's a goal for your children. And he, uh, uh, he, he was obviously a gifted man, a uh, young person intellectually, uh, studied law per his father's request. His father died in 1528 and Calvin said, I don't want to be a lawyer. I'm getting out of this. And he took up uh, what would have been an academic trend at the time, sort of the humanist, I want to be a professor, I want to teach, I want to read classical literature. And uh, he did. And he was good at it. He learned classical linguistics and literature and language. Ended up uh, uh, wandering about a bit looking for a job. We don't know the details of his conversion. Sometime between 1532 and 1534 he converts. We don't, this isn't a time of great uh, contra the, the stereotype of the introspective Protestant. These men were not, they didn't have a lot of time to be introspective and think about how do I explain what's happened to me. Uh, these were desperate times in some ways, and they recognized the church was in a desperate situation and it required action. So we don't have some long autobiography that he's explained his conversion. We know he was converted. He, How old was he? He was 20, early 20s, 23. Sometimes between the age 22 and 25 he was converted. Thank you. And he... Um, we do have evidence of this. He was, he was sent to school. The church paid for his education and was paying for him to continue on with his education. He turned around and gave all the money back about this time, which is a curious move. We have that in the, in the historical record. Uh, after he converted, he continued to wander about for various reasons, not the least of which is depending on which province you were under or which monarchy you were under, you could not be a Protestant. And he was. 
he, he was solidly in the Protestant camp, ends up in 1536, a gentleman by the name of Will Farrell invites him to Geneva and wants him to settle here and really gives him a good tongue lashing that if he leaves, he's facing the wrath of God, you know. And these were happy times. And, uh, and he, he, he ends up staying in Geneva, settling in uh, Geneva. I'm going to make this bio a little more abbreviated. He, it is this year, though, that he publishes his most famous work. I didn't put this out for Elijah. Uh, the, uh, the, uh, he publishes his most famous work, which is uh, The Institutes of the Christian Religion, which will read from in just a minute. It goes through several editions. 1536 is when the first edition comes out. It is probably, no, 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 it is the, it's the first grand systematic attempt of organizing what this protest was all about. Luther had brilliant, beautiful writings, but they were never systematized for all kinds of reasons. Not, not, nothing to do with his intelligence. I think it's circumstance more than anything. But Calvin brought that lawyer humanistic mind to this. He followed that Protestant scholastic move. What do we believe? And he organized it accordingly. Uh, he uh, was run out of Geneva. The Genevan government weren't crazy about he and Farrell uh, for, for various reasons. At one point, for some of the reforms, he went into exile. Uh, up in Strasbourg for a while. Then he returned to Geneva four years later, and it's here where he famously lived and wrote and preached until his death in 1564. That is a very quick and un, un, uh, incomplete, unfair biography of him, but it gives you an idea of the man. Um, what I'd like to do now, and I'm happy to answer questions, um, at the end, but I'd like to cover some of the theological themes that I think are critical for Anglican identity that emerge out of Calvin. Obviously not exhaustive, obviously we could spend forever working through the Institutes, etc. Have fun. Uh, but um, let, let me go over just a handful of themes I think that are important if you want to understand the founding articles of our own communion. The, the first one I would point out, the first theme I think that is critical that Calvin gives us, and that Calvin, not he does not invent this, I want to make this clear, but he develops it, refines it a good bit, is covenantal theology. Covenantal theology. Covenantal theology. The theology of the covenant that God actually has worked in history through very specific relational means and ends, beginning with Adam. Not Israel, but Adam. And from Adam forward, and again, this gets nuanced and tricky after Calvin as well, but from and arguable, but from Adam forward, God has been progressively unfolding his permanent and fixed will for redeeming humankind. And in that regard, what Calvin brings to the table in this second generation in an articulate and beautiful way is that we can, uh, Christianity is not a new 
movement or idea. Protestantism, key for his time, is not a new movement or idea. It's in perfect continuity with what has come before, and indeed, it relies on what Christ, the meaning of Christ, relies upon what has come before as it is progressively unfolded to the cross. And these, these covenants, if you just, these loops, I guess, that I'm drawing here, have just progressively unfolded from Adam through Noah, Israel, um, the Davidic, um, etc. I'm, I'm, I don't mean to abbreviate and but they culminate, of course, in Christ. Therefore, all of Protestant theology is to be understood as a relationship, uh, and Christian theology as a relationship with the God of Israel. This is not; these are not two gods. These are not, and again, this is not new. The early church had wrestled with this, but Calvin rearticulates this. So there is a relationship that Calvinism articulates between Israel and the church. Okay. Well, what is that relationship? That's, that's key. And by the way, <laughs> that's the million-dollar question in some ways for all of theology, for some, is what is that relationship? Because then at the center of this covenantal unfolding becomes the very question that Luther forced us to think about. And Luther still forces us to think about, which is what? What of the law? Because that is the marker of Israel. The mark of Israel is the law, right? Um, this, and not just the law, but the signs of being set apart for the law, the Mosaic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant as it moves to the Mosaic covenant. The law. What do we do with it? Well, Luther said, we quake. <laughs> That's what we do. We tremble when we read it. We recognize our sin through it. And Calvin agreed 100% with Luther. Calvin, however, also suggested that the law has to be thought of in this covenantal framework as well. That law um, is, uh, is something that does condemn because when we see the will of God and the righteousness of God, we know we can't meet it. And Calvin, with Luther, says Christ has to become the end of the law. <clears throat> Calvin uh, also suggested that there's a positive effect of the law as well, though, in that it tells us the character of God. And even though we're unable to fulfill it, it, we can, as the words of our liturgy say, incline our hearts toward it through the power of God. We can be inclined to desire that which God desires. But he was also quick to add in the Institutes, you can't necessarily see this happening. You see, there's a difference between Calvinism and later Puritanism. That's for another class. But the isms get all confused here. Calvin did not believe you could necessarily see this working out, but he trusted that because the law came from God, it could be, it could be trusted just as Christ is trusted. In other words, 
Christ and the law can't be pitted against each other. They have to be taken together. They have to be taken together. Otherwise, Christ doesn't make sense completely. Let me read. For the sake of time, I won't pull out the institutes, but I can. next week I'll bring a print for everybody. I didn't have time. Let me read from our own prayer book where I believe this had, and our own articles, where I think this had influence. The Old Testament is not contrary to the New. For both the Old and the New Testament, everlasting, in both the Old and the New Testament, everlasting life is offered to mankind in Christ. Continuity. Christ is pointed to in the Old. And indeed, Israel saw Christ on the horizon who is the only mediator between God and man, being both God and man. Wherefore they are not to be heard, which feign that the old fathers did look only for transitory promises. The promises were real, just like Luther said as well. The promises were not abrogated or, okay, I've changed my mind now, says Yahweh. Although the law, here, here we go, although the law given from God by Moses as touching ceremonies and rites do not bind Christian men, nor the civil precepts thereof ought of necessity to be received in any commonwealth. Yet notwithstanding, no Christian man whatsoever is free from the obedience of the commandments which are called moral. A complex subject, I don't pretend to do it justice. In terms of historical theology though, I believe both Luther and Calvin influenced the way this article was developed in England. That the way we understand the law is not as simply a negative, scary, older expression of God's will, but as an ongoing, living window into the righteousness of God and his love for us. And I think that the articles explain that as well, that while certain things no longer maintain in terms of how we go about worshiping God, how we go about understanding God, the moral law, for example, tells us something about his character and his love, and especially his love for us in Christ. Another uh, in, uh, to, to put it... To put it this way, just one more quick point. The law for Israel was a kind of hope in Calvin's mind, not just a pure condemnation. And yet he agrees with Luther that the law does condemn because ultimately you can't say Christ fulfills it if it doesn't. Nor can you begin to understand Christ's words in the Sermon on the Mount about the interiority of how just keeping the law is not going to save you. And Calvin fully explicates that as well. In this regard, I think Calvin contributes greatly to the Anglican understanding of sanctification and its relationship to justification, that the fruit of faith actually is what we understand the law to be or obedience to be in Article 12.
Good works, which are the fruits of faith and follow after justification, cannot put away our sins and endure the severity of God's judgment. Yet are they pleasing and acceptable to God in Christ and do spring out necessarily of a true and lively faith. Those are the words of the articles. And Calvin, I believe, is one of the continental conduits that in his correspondence and influence helped the Anglican reformers understand that sanctification and the article on works needs to be included in its relationship to justification, but it must be Christocentric in its, in its beginning and its end. It cannot follow the system of penance that's put forward and penitential obedience that was put forward in the medieval sacramental system. Next, and this is the big one. This is the one everyone's, you can ask any, most 18-year-olds, I shouldn't say any, this, and you do this and when they show up in college. What do you know about Calvin? He was mean. You get that? I mean, okay, well, probably. Um, but, I mean, so am I. So, um, no, election, predestination, and providence. Those are the... The, the big two, the big two especially, election and predestination, predestination, predestination. Um, the, the first thing that we want to understand is Calvin did not invent the concept. <laughs> he, uh, he, did not, he was not the first to articulate the concept of election and predestination. It's Paul. Um, and uh, it's words right out of scripture. Uh, all the church, most of the church fathers dealt with it at some level and included it, most famously probably Augustine. Thomas Aquinas, that great, brilliant scholastic of the uh, 13th century, he acknowledges all of these things, granted, and pulls it through Aristotle a bit before he works it out. Calvin is not bringing anything new to the table. Most currently to his life, Luther had several things to say about these issues as well. No one in the Lutheran camp would have disagreed, okay, on the concepts of election, predestination, and providence. Um, certain, let's just, as simple as we can, here's how I would say Calvin and Luther's influence in, in Anglican and Protestant thought goes. Certain prerogatives Certain prerogatives belong to God and God alone. God doesn't share all of his prerogatives with us. The way this has worked itself out theologically, and this is again in a kind of a, a uh, a level, a, a kind of level of Protestant sophistication I think Calvin brings to it is when we talk about these things you don't mind predestination is the decrees of God the secret counsel of God God's prerogatives aren't entirely ours. His benefits and his blessings are all yours in Christ. But his prerogatives are his 
and formally we call them the decrees. And let me give you a quick example before I get to the final and third point and let us talk a bit. Why did God create? Well, we only can speculate as far as Scripture allows us that God created according to his own counsel. God created not just the world according to his own counsel, he created you according to his own counsel. You didn't have a lot of say-so in it. Why the Trinity and the relationship of the Trinity? I don't know. But the same God who's promised the Spirit to give us the assurance that we have says, I have a Son and a Spirit that I'm in relation with. We. We. It belongs to God's prerogative to understand and hold these relationships of creation and Trinitarianism and that relational aspect of his own character together. Calvin says that's precisely how we understand election and predestination. And I think and I and by the way, this is in concert with with Luther as as well, although they did differ somewhat in the way it was ultimately articulated. But Calvin held that predestination and election are consistent in Scripture. They are grounded, most importantly here, in the way God has related through his covenants to his people. And they are secrets that belong to God and God alone. He actually cautions in the Institutes that we should not uh, speculate about these things. And as scripture then clearly shows, we say that God once established by his eternal and unchangeable plan, those whom he long before determined once for all to receive into salvation and those whom on the other hand he would devote to destruction. Calvin had no problem, and it's still a difficult and controversial doctrine to this day to say that the doctrine of election holds to a double meaning. There are those whom God has raised up and those whom God has abandoned. Luther, for various reasons, again, was silent on that point, the latter, the idea of the abandonment. Calvin said it's consistent. Now, I am going to let you in on something. We're not going to fix this problem today in the debate today, but let me point us to our own theological um, background. Let me point us to our own just to show you that this doctrine is not foreign, nor is it alien or uh, adverse to Anglican teaching. Article 17. Predestination to life is the everlasting purpose of God, whereby before the foundations of the world were laid, the decrees of God. He hath constantly decreed by his counsel secret to us to deliver from curse and damnation those whom he hath chosen in Christ out of mankind 
and to bring them by Christ to everlasting salvation as vessels made to honor. That's just the beginning of that long article which has been so abused and neglected in our time. But it is part of the Magisterial Reformation. It is in the Book of Common Prayer and the articles for a reason. And I believe that both Calvin and Luther's fingerprints are on this as simply as just brilliant exegetes of Paul and the New Testament. It there actually for Calvin was great comfort in this doctrine. It was not a frightening word to him. But just as we trust God as creator and we believe that he ordained our creation, we trust God as our redeemer. And then that too belongs somehow in the secret counsel of God that can be trusted. A parent doesn't reveal everything to the child until the child comes to maturity. And perhaps that maturity itself will be our, our own enjoyment of him for eternity. And then that knowledge becomes more clear. So creation and redemption are held together as blessings of the decrees of God. Finally, and last, lastly, I'll, I'll say that I believe that Calvin's influence on our own theological system is found in our understanding of the sacraments. And frankly, I think if you really want to see where Cal I think this is one of the most profound influences of Calvin's thought in Anglican thought. These two clearly had their mark, but Luther and Calvin lined up on a lot of this stuff. Um, this one, they, they probably disagreed a little more. Luther still, he, he never worked it out the way Calvin did. But when we see out of the Book of Common Prayer, I think Calvin's echo was a little longer in England than Luther's was when it came to the sacrament. The question, of course, for the sacraments, which I said last week was at the center of the Reformation, was how is grace conveyed? How, do, how does God make us right with him? And sacramental theology is the keystone of the entire medieval, late medieval system. We're made right through participation and infusion of grace in the actual physicality of doing these things. Luther says nine that's not quite it. That's no, by the way. <laughs> I know you know that. But anyway, he says, no, that's not, that's not right. That's not right. Um, but, but Luther still, he, he held to one doctrine that he probably, you know, again, we can chase rabbits as to why he did this, but he said, it's the question of the physical presence of Christ in the sacrament or not. And this is a complicated and and it tied to all kinds of Aristotelian medieval thought that I know you're dying to hear on a Sunday morning. But what, 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 what he, what he, what he, the question is, how, does, how is Christ there? That's it. How is Christ there? And it was Calvin with that keen mind who said, you know, Christ is there. And Luther said, Luther's dead by the time Calvin, yeah, Christ is there. There's another group floating around the continent, though, saying, nah, he's not there. The Anabaptist. That's not another class. But this was a big argument. you got to remember, Rome's, Rome's breathing down the neck of these guys wanting to stop this mess. Okay? This, this isn't light stuff. Your life could be on the line. The future of countries are on the line here. So Calvin, 
you got people running around saying Christ really isn't there. It's just a symbol. It's just a it's a memorial. You you just remember through this. It's just it, it's it's kind of like a a pep rally or a or a <laughs> it, it's a way of just of pointing to to something that happened a long time ago. And Calvin and Luther both disagreed with this. But whereas Luther held that there's still a physical presence possible through consubstantiation, Calvin said what we're really looking at is the spiritual presence of Christ. That how Christ, it, <clears throat> the sacraments do two things. One, they both signify and seal. They signify and seal. We'll look at the prayer book in just a minute. Our relationship to God. Baptism and the supper do this. Okay? They are signifiers. They actually mean something in relationship to something else. That's what a signifier does. They seal in the sense they convey a real connection. Calvin said that this connection, this connection... Is spiritual, it's real, and it is apprehended through faith. This was Calvin's great and the Reformed innovation on the Supper that the Anglican Church had struggled with through the years, but it picked up on this early on, and actually the articles say this very clearly. That the spiritual apprehension, that in other words, the the, the Latin phrase is ex opere operato. It just happens. That God is it almost, and this is exactly what the reformers said, by magic. And that's what the reformers were saying. It's not simply a memorial. It's not something to remember. And it's not magic. But like the hearing of the word, it is apprehended through faith. The sacraments and the blessing and the meaning of the sacraments are apprehended through faith. So again, it's driving the Protestant emphasis of, on the sacraments back to, one, you can trust it. It's meant there. It's there for a reason. Not, it's not an extra or an add-on you do for fun once a month or just to get really serious and sort of navel-gaze for an hour. It's there because something is genuinely conveyed, but the way it is conveyed and the way it's understood is the same way we understood and apprehend the Word of God. It is God's gift by faith that we understand it. Article 25 gives us some indication of, the Cal of Calvin's influence here. Um, Sacraments ordained of Christ be not only badges or tokens of Christian men's profession, against the Anabaptists. But rather they be certain, sure witnesses and effectual signs of grace and of God's goodwill towards us, by which he doth work invisibly in us, and doth not only quicken, but also strengthen and confirm our faith in him. And then it goes on with the Lutheran tradition and Calvin, the Reformed does as well, and the Anglican, to reduce the sacraments to two, which are the marks of the church, baptism and the supper. The preaching of the word was added by some. 
Okay, And then you on your own can go and read on baptism and the supper, but it speaks of them both as signs and as seals of regeneration, of the promises that are given in Christ, and of the, of the repeated blessing that we come to each week in, the, in taking that sacrament. So, <clears throat> I didn't do it justice. <laughs> I, we could spend a lifetime wrestling with this and arguing about it. Hint, the church has. Um, but I, I think that, uh, I think that um, you can, I, what I would want you to walk out with before we move to Cramner is know that both of these streams of thought influenced our Anglican identity. Both of them. And they both are very important for the doctrinal understanding of Anglicanism. And you really can't take one exclusive to the other when you see the complexity that Cramner was working under when he put this stuff together in the late 1530s. I open it up for questions, conversations, corrections. It's a light subject. <laughs> hey, Matt. Just, just in our short time at the Advent, I've run across a lot of Lutheran thinkers. Mm-hmm in the 20th century who seemed to pit the law against the gospel. That strikes me as problematic in light of Luther and Calvin. Or that they only speak of the law in a negative context. Meaning that they accept that the law would kills or accuses, but they don't see anything positive to be derived from it. Is that out of sync with the word of the reformers? I'm not getting moved into that chess corner now. And let, let me. <coughs> How careful a wordsmith you are, Mr. Matt. I would not say. Um, I don't know. I'm not going to speculate on that. I, I will. I will stand where I. I can only speak for myself and my own training that I bring to it. And I would argue both are important for understanding Anglicanism. The degree of emphasis I do understand is a phenomenon that has to be wrestled with within Anglicanism. I would also argue this. Given current problems within our own communion, the last thing I'm worried about are people that like Luther. And this is live. So. That's Wallace with two L's. So. Does that, you see what I'm saying? You're, you're asking a question I would love to talk about, but I just I would hesitate to try to speak for other people sure. on that. And I would, if, if Luther is where people are, are are drawing emphasis, I just think right now, given some of the other emphases that are going on and the absolute uh, corrosion of of real substantive theological thinking, uh, I like the way these guys. are and both are worth drawing from. That's all I want to walk out of here with. Couple, couple more. Anybody else? I'm yes, to sir. Remember what you said about um, Israel even found the law to be. Now I was thinking about asking you to go back to getting the words you used, but something uh, maybe that the law. Well, this isn't going to be what you said, but something it's about okay. the law being, you know, that it was saving or something. The law, the, the yeah, yeah. No, I, look, I, I think 
All right, to, let's put on Calvin's hat for a minute. I think what he's saying is, when you read about Israel, when you read the Old Testament and you see the promises, and you see how the law, the law both condemned Israel but held up hope for Israel also, that in the sense, and you've you got to take it as a whole, yes, yes, that the law wasn't without hope completely in Calvin's mind, in the sense that the law anticipated Christ also. Okay, not that it, not that the law. They, indeed, the Bible is full of condemnation of those who find their meaning strictly in the law apart for, from Christ. Mm-hmm. But I think Calvin's point is that, that as God unfolds this covenantal meaning, the law, the Mosaic law, actually contains hope in the same way Israel as a nation contains a typological hope in Christ that is fulfilled when God Himself takes on the kingship. He also takes on the law. So I, I think that's his, his we don't have you don't have to look at the law as so alien as as if Israel just hated it. Uh, there is a sense in which Israel anticipated with the law like they anticipated with a king. And the scriptures unpack that to say, yes, and here is where you find it, in this final historical definitive moment on the cross and the resurrection. I think we're out of time. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord. Thanks be to God.